everyone. Welcome to Novel Finds, the podcast where we talk about your favorite books, our favorite books, and everything in between. Hey, I'm Maggie, and I am here with an author interview. I am so excited. Um, I'm here with Zoe Spivak, all about her book, Mademoiselle Revolution. I loved this book so much. It is so much fun. Um, I love a good historical fiction, and I really love one, too, that also teaches me about the history, because I don't know much I don't know anything until now a little bit about the Haitian Revolution. And the only thing I really know about any history from France is from Les Mis. So I feel like I really got a nice education (laughs) from this book while also having a really good time. So thank you so much. You know, you're you're so welcome. I thought you were going to stop with, I don't know anything. (laughs) I thought you were just going to stop. And I'm like, don't Maggie, come on. Maggie, not here. I don't know. But I I am glad uh, because I'm, I'm very public about my desire to teach people things. Um, I'm obnoxious in that way. I'm also transparent in that I love, you know, when I learn something that was really, is really resonant with me, I've got to share it. So when I learn something that I feel like was critical to my own development as a woman and as a human being, um, I'm like, better write a book about it. Uh, and that's, and that's what I did. And it seems to be so far uh, a mild success. I would say so. I mean, the book is genuinely incredible. I could not put it down. Um, I'm so excited to chat more about you with about the book. But before we get started, um, Zoe, first, how are you doing? And then secondly, um, (laughs) do you have a go to snack or drink combination while you're writing? Oh my gosh, this is, that is probably the best question. I'm not how I'm doing. That's not really, I don't really care much for that question, but the second one is great. Um, no, the, the first question, I'm actually doing really well. Mildly stressed, just moved uh, in a larger apartment. My cats are loving all the windowsills. Oh, nice. um, so, so I'm doing very well on that front. Secondly, I have several snack combinations that I find are really integral to who I am as a mm-hmm. person. Um, I'm a big believer in the like chocolate and fruit. So um, ever since I was in high school, my favorite were mini M&Ms. This is not a snack. This is more of a dessert with an orange. I found that it really, the notes, you know, that scene in Ratatouille? It's that was me. Yes, like it was. It's where they're putting two pieces in, and like the he's having the a, music a minor, is playing. Yeah, he's having a mild episode. Yeah. Like that's me. That was me when I discovered that, like, if you eat it with an orange, it just really enhances the flavor of the of the M and M's. That and uh, I've recently uh, become a passionate proponent of white cheddar popcorn. But I'm really I'm I'm a bit of a fruitivore. I eat mm-hmm. I eat a lot of fruit. Big fan of those six dollar Rainier cherries that Trader Ooh. Joe's sells. Um, that's a personal problem um, <laughs> that I have. <laughs> I really enjoy those cherries. Uh, but that's kind of those are my main uh, my main snacks. Wait, that should be your podcast. Just snack talking finds. about snacks. Snack <laughs> Just talking finds. about snacks. <laughs> snack finds. Excellent. Let's do it. Done. We can do like little mini sodes. We can just talk about different snacks. Or like what snack pairs best with what book. Oh, I think, you know what I mean? I think that. Okay. Think okay. That's actually. <laughs> that's, that is wonderful. What snack do you think pairs with your book? You're a wonderful person. Um, so what a great question. Okay. Uh, it, it's a balance of like, what do you think pairs with the book as opposed to what would Sylvie eat? So um, bread would have been very expensive uh, at this time. Expensive for what it is. Kind of consider it like gas prices. It's something that you have to buy. but uh, it hurts. It's very, very painful when mm-hmm. the price is out of control. Um, so, so bread would have been a real challenge. I think, you know, Sylvie has a real sweet tooth. 
uh, she grew up on the island. So I, I would say that, you know, your, your sugar always came probably with a good amount of blood in it. But she, she was a big fan of sweets. And so this is kind of the period where just preceding it, we got really talented with how to make sweets um, in the 18th century. Um, so I would say probably a quintessential French pastry, maybe brioche. I think brioche mm. would be a really appropriate sweet to have while reading this. Um, and if, But to make it a little more egalitarian, you have to drink it with red wine um, because anything else was considered a little too at the time, especially in the time that Sylvie is living, uh, yeah. uh, vin rouge, uh, red wine was kind of the, the people's drink, which I find a little funny now that we're, it's not so much considered that anymore. No. Uh, a box Chardonnay is more the people's drink. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, so I would say, I would say a nice mild red wine uh, and, and a little a plate of brioche would probably be a good, a good a, 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 one foot in each world, a little ancien regime, a little, a little old world, and then a little new world with the red wine. I love it. That's a perfect pairing, I would say. Thank you. Thank you. You're generous, Max. Thank oh, you. well. That's what I'm here for. Literally, please. Validate yeah. me more. <laughs> um, well, if you don't mind, uh, could you give us just a brief synopsis of the book and then just a little bit about yourself as an author? So this book, probably, I, how would I describe this book? Obviously, the worst question. I would say that this book is about a young woman um, growing up in uh, what at the time was called Saint-Domingue. It is now Haiti. Um, and the entire island was Hispaniola. And she grew up and grows up on an indigo plantation to a slave-owning white father. And we kind of are introduced to, I think, a space that a lot of Americans who grow up only with the American form of enslavement were kind of exposed to the nuances and atrocities um, of race relations in that area. And so she grows up and starts to kind of recognize her own place as a mixed race woman. And as she starts to realize these things uh, and, and her brother realizing kind of these atrocities, this is as the Haitian revolution is starting to pick up steam. Um, and like many other white enslaving people, Sylvie and her family end up fleeing. Um, but she is really uncomfortable now being a part of her family because the majority of her family don't really recognize um, the, the true breadth of their crimes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she feels that she can't be a part of that anymore. And so she and her brother, the one that, well, I won't spoil it, but one of uh, her brothers, they actually go to Paris uh, looking for a degree of safety and security. And if anybody has any familiarity about you know 18th century France, even in a broad sense, a lot of disquiet. So unfortunately, they actually end up leaving one revolution for another one. Um, and she has to not only confront her own identity and complicity in a slave society, but she has to start to also be realizing that she becomes more critical of this more or less white revolution mm-hmm. and and trying to, you know, she's supporting these individuals, but she's like, you guys are kind of hypocritical. There's some complexities here. I'm not sure if I'm loving this. Um, and she she basically has to realize how far is she willing to go, not only to save her own skin, but to, I think, try to find some sense of, of forgiveness for herself. So that's kind of what the book is about, kind of, and kind of gay, so. and a little yeah. bit of murder. <laughs> so that, that too, those little like asterisks at the end. Yeah, I, I loved it so much. I thought Sylvie's journey was just really, really incredible, especially I felt when she was in Paris and she was really getting involved in the revolution, sort of picking up the discrepancies between like, yes, the royal family is not great, 
but also what they were doing was not actually helping the people. Um, right. Yeah. Right. And that, and I think, you know, again, a lot of it is, is me learning more from it. You know, I, I was, <laughs> my degree is in health sciences, but I spent a lot of time in the history department in undergrad. And, you know, I, I took this wonderful um, French revolution course with like a preeminent professor on the subject. And the things that were happening, I think, especially in the United States, where we also had a revolution that was, you know, very mm-hmm. difficult. It was not comparable. But I think that we like to kind of piggyback on on revolution. It's kind of hard not to be like, hey, vive la resistance. you know, we we romanticize revolution, I think, mm-hmm. um, especially, you know, when we look at things like Les Mis, which was actually that's a different revolution that happened yeah. in the 1830s and much shorter and, and smaller at scale. Um, but the French Revolution was and when I speak to uh, French friends of mine and, and getting their perspective, you know, I, I say this, I'm like, you know, in the United States, it's kind of romanticized. And they kind of look at me and say, no, 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 it's just called it was terror it was terrorism um, and that is how they they articulate it and that's kind of how i come to realize it where you have these wonderful set of ideals and you know you have enlightenment thought and scientific method and critical thinking and senses of democracy and republicanism little r republicanism but it it's manifested with a great deal of ego um yeah. and a great deal of unchecked um, lack of accountability and transparency in government. And uh, eventually it turns into more or less just a military state. Um, and just, I mean, I, I don't want to get too graphic and I'm not interested. And I hope that that was come across in the book. I try to be very specific in when mm-hmm. I share um, graphic or, or realistic scenes. I personally don't take an interest in, in, in hyper graphic uh, moments of trauma. Um, yeah. I really only use them when it's useful. Um, I think there are spaces where it's important, um, but I think there's also, I feel like I don't want to commodify suffering. Like, for example, an enslaved people, I could have waxed poetic about, you know, bashing enslaved babies' heads against trees. But I'm not interested in, does that, you know, make sense? I'm not really interested in in that, right? It doesn't do much, I feel like, for the narrative that I'm trying to tell. And so, you know, when you're in France and there's just, you don't imagine France that way, right? We don't imagine piles of stripped bodies in the middle of, of the Champs-Élysées, right? We don't, that's not how you think of Paris, but that was Sylvie's Paris. It was violence. It was pulling people out of their homes at 3am in the morning for a trial that wasn't a trial, you know? So absolutely terrifying, but they're using the same language that she would have heard in Haiti of revolution and freedom and liberty Mm -hmm. and shaking off the shackles of enslavement. But not, yeah, I, yeah. I, right? It, just, it seems like a little, right? A little bit of a discrepancy. Now, no one can disagree that the economy of France was completely falling apart, and that the majority of Western Europe, I mean, it, extremely, you know, uh, a lot of class stratification. We have it actually worse now in 2022 than they did, but you get the point. And so, you know, it's a little difficult for her, though, to compare people that are poor and hungry, mm-hmm. that is fair, but innately free. And there is some class mobility, you know, things like that. It does not exist where she's from. So she really struggles with, I get it on paper, guys, getting the essays, reading the books, understand this. But you're using words like slave and not to pull from the Princess Bride, but it's like that word, I don't think it means what you think it means. <laughs> you know, so so that's, I think, you know, in, to tie into the second question, that's kind of like my shtick as an author is it's like, I see a misconception or a concept that I think isn't given its due course mm-hmm. in the historical fiction narrative. And I wanted to do two things, like not only explain kind of this unique niche of being mixed race, like 
propagating, you know, racism and white supremacy in a way, right? Mm -hmm. While also being a victim of it. I thought that was very interesting because I don't think I could accurately and meaningfully, nor should I speak to being enslaved in Haiti. Um, right. That wouldn't have been my space. Um, I know what my space would have been in the United States. In the United States, they would have been in a house um, and most likely sexually trafficked. That's most likely my space. Um, I know that sounds odd to, to speak to it very candidly, no, but that's yeah. kind of how it's, you know, that's how you have to see it. And I'm like, it's not really my space to, to talk about that, but I can speak to French history. I speak French, I'm a Francophile. Mm-hmm. I, I, you know, I, I love the history and the language. And I think it's important that we fully understand the United States, just how terrible this was yeah. um, and just how many wonderful things came out of it in a way, namely the metric system (laughs) that honestly, (laughs) that's, you know, it's a funny, but it's like, that is the one, you know, if other than the ideas, right. The ideas of the French revolution, but the, you know, mostly it was the metric system. Uh, Unfortunately um, the the abolition of slavery was not maintained. Uh, Napoleon uh, almost immediately upon uh, becoming dictator emperor um, restored uh, slavery to uh, throughout the French colonies. So that's kind of what I do as an author is I like to take something that we think we know and restore it. And that's why I use that word a lot. I like the word restore because I'm not changing anything. I'm not, I'm not, you know, the only person I, I, I added in there was Sylvie. And I promise you there are black people in, in France. Yeah. They have always been there, right? They've always been in France. Uh, so I, I really value restoring the fuller picture it's like almost like a i feel like history can be so much a where's waldo where you're zoomed in really close that you can't see the greater picture yeah and i i think that's i think that's really but you can't see the forest of the trees so that's that's why i write and, and you'll never find me writing anything that doesn't teach you about something that you thought you knew um and then really expanding on it and i hope a meaningful but intimate way so very yeah. long answer very no long answer. i loved it i loved it so much and um just a few things really stuck out to me because I think it's so important. And it's part of the reason that I read so much historical fiction is to sort of get a glimpse into the world. That's not just from a textbook, especially because um, I feel like a lot of times in history, the further away that it is, the more romanticized and glorified it can become just because maybe something good came from it later that we forget how horrible certain aspects of it actually were. Right. And I think it's so interesting that you you had mentioned like the way that you wrote this book from Sylvie's point of view, especially because I noticed when I was reading it, there weren't a lot of graphic or like heavily depicted scenes, but you could yes. feel the terror and like you could feel her fear when she was walking down the streets. And I think that that like that came across so well in this book that makes me that that's incredibly validating to hear because i want to show things as they were and your life wasn't a constant string of like this is a head on a spike but it it was punctuated kind of just like it is now unfortunately punctuated by trauma right every few months something would happen that would make you feel inherently unsafe uh and then there was obviously a period when it was kind of as chaotic as it sounded but it's not like Sylvie was was just parked outside of the Tuileries waiting for things to happen, right? It was these very specific moments. And I didn't, when they were shown, I didn't want to water them down. But yeah. I wasn't interested, the word would be sensationalizing it. I It was already fairly graphic and, and raw. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I didn't think that I needed to, you know, dangling bodies from a parapet. I, I just don't think that that's how you, you show actual, I, I feel like when things are too extreme, 
it no if you become desensitized you become distanced yeah. it mm-hmm. seems it seems theatrical you know so i i try to you know the scene that really stuck out to me and it was one that i i knew i wanted to write very quickly there's a scene where le princesse de lambal um mm-hmm. who lovely character the best friend of of marie antoinette real woman um they ended up we don't know exactly what they did to her before um there are some thoughts as to what they did to her don't need to get into it but this part that sylvie sees so that's the part that i describe is they sever her head and they put it on a spike and they march it around town and what they they literally did do that they went up to marie antoinette where she was being kept and they made her kiss her best friend on the mouth give her a kiss they said and then say vive rosie stones and then she she said that and i just and so i had that happen to sylvie because they were literally going around making people kiss this woman severed but like can you yeah can you I, like understand it it's it's almost like <laughs> so i felt for her so much in that moment but it's it's something that you can't even imagine you can't even picture how horrifying that that must have been and how like yeah. deeply unsettling and just just it's just but sad bundled, yeah but bundled within staunch abolitionists mm-hmm. a staunch you know democrat you know uh sense of democracy right so you have this just and it becomes the question that i never answer and i do that on purpose you know not only if we're talking about the haitian revolution or the french revolution was it worth it mm-hmm. you know was it was it okay is it justified um but i i hint that that is the question right yeah. so you're looking at the which again i specifically leave uh we leave the haitian revolution so you don't see what happens to those people um the people that stayed on on haiti uh i mean it was a mass campaign of rape and pillage and murder full stop not interested in debating whether or not you're entitled to that because mm-hmm. i think what i normally say when people ask that question they're like well you know what do you think is you know I mean, you, you're raping and killing and destroying all these people like yeah they owned you but like don't you think that's too far you know blah 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 and uh and and so the question becomes I'm like I don't really answer it but I do say well in the same breath for fun people would put you in a box fill it with nails and push down a hill so it's like yeah it's hard I'm like I think the answer shouldn't be or the question shouldn't be well who is entitled to what violence it's more don't own anybody yeah you know when you when you dehumanize people either whether it be in France right then they were dehumanized they were ostracized and disenfranchised and that was true that is very much true universally at this time period and either in either case obviously to a degree uh, more seriously in Haiti but the concept is is the same where if you disenfranchise people and you make them and treat them as less than human they're not going to be people anymore you're not they're, yeah. they're not going to react in a way that you would consider civil you know th- the avenues of justice that you would consider traditional have been stripped from them. And so they use a language you do understand, Mm -hmm. terror. And they did that in France and they did that in Haiti. And so I think it's more about the message. And that is why it's so fundamentally tied to American politics is that American politics saw what happened in Haiti. And I tried to touch on this a little bit. I hope it was clear in the author's note, but that's why it's so incredibly relevant to us is because what happened is you see Southerners, slave owners, saw it and was like, oh, see, I told you, you let those black people go. They're going to, they're going to hide your kids, hide your wife. Like literally what, that was literally the mentality. And then while Northerners or non-slave owners, you don't want to generalize, but for the sake of the civil war, I will. Northerners looked at it and said, black people can have a democracy. I told you, I look at, they did it. And they did. It's the completely legitimate black democracy. It was incredible. First one. And amazing what they ended up doing. Incredible. 
Okay. And so two completely different ideas. And we still see that today, that incredibly polarized, you see this example of what we would call liberation and success. You know, another group may see, I told you, look, what's look, what will happen if you let them go. And that, and that became entrenched once yeah. the Haitian revolution began and it were, there was no going back. And so I'd argue, and a lot of historians argue that that was kind of the, the beginning of the end. Um, mm-hmm. and so I'm, I'm really digressing. I love it. Yeah. Fuller, fuller picture kind of as to why I specifically wanted to write about the Haitian revolution to the, to the degree I felt was appropriate. I didn't feel like I could write a book staying there. That's not, that's not my space, but I could start there and then move to France. And then it becomes a really interesting dichotomy of like, you remember Haiti, right? And then I add mm-hmm. these flashbacks to kind of contextualize things. And I just think it makes for a richer story than the French Revolution alone, because hist- history does not exist in a vacuum. Everything is happening concurrently, and they relate to each other in really meaningful ways. Um, because I myself, I was writing this during peak BLM. Like mm-hmm. it was literally, I remember like editing this and there was, you know, the National Guard was going by my window at that oh night. And I didn't know, I know, and it sounds so surreal, but I literally didn't know what I was hearing, that rumble, because I'd never heard tanks before. And so it's like, you open, I'm like, oh my God. like it was literally, you know, these big Jeeps. Yeah. And I, you know, I was just like, and I was literally editing and it felt so surreal because I mean, that's something that, you know, so there's so many historical periods where little girls would open their window and they would see soldiers or they would see rape or they would see trauma or they would see riot or they would see protest. Right. It grounded to me the reality of that, you know, we use the word history, but we're on a, we're on a treadmill and we're, we're stepping mm-hmm. on the same steps as everybody else and yeah. nothing is new. And there are, it, it can be healing to look back to past trauma and to find the strength that other people manifested and survived you know, mm-hmm. and people did survive the French Revolution um, with great trauma. And there's a wonderful quote, and it's in the book. I made it an epitaph, but it's like, no one will, it's something a lot to paraphrase, paraphrase. It's like, uh, no one truly knows the value of living unless they live between the years of 1789 to 1795. Like the value of a life. Yeah. Um, and I feel like we're learning that now, especially Gen Z. I like think of my sister, you know, truly coming of age where mortality is so tenuous and nothing but protest and death and rights and distrust in government. Mm -hmm. And so I I just, I, that's why I had to write it in the way that I did. Um, So you're balancing a lot, but I, I hopefully all of these things ring true as you're reading it. Honestly, I think that they do. I think like you, you are balancing so much in this book, especially with Sylvie, like figuring out her identity, but she does it in such a way where she's not necessarily, like you said, conflicted about who she is, but she's just figuring out what it means, um, not just for how people see her, but also for how she sees herself and for how right. she feels like she can work in society. Um, right. What space do you occupy? Like, yeah, what, what exactly. is fair for me? Yeah. yeah. I, it's like, it's not just so much like, oh, it's so hard to be, it's more just like, it's all kind of shitty where do what what space is the most appropriate and it's like you figure that you figure that out like depending on where you are and who she's with like when she was with Simone she was like I'm not like Simone take the lead you know what I mean like there's just there's times and places and like in that other moment when they were like there's no slaves in France that's a famous line and Sylvie's like I saw the books I promise you there are slaves in France and she could speak to that and so it's I that's you know that's where I'm coming from yeah that was an amazing moment in oh, really? in oh. the book. Oh my gosh, yes. I cuz there were so many cuz Sylvie is, 
young. She's like a teenager. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And she sort of fluctuates a lot in the beginning, less so as she gets older, as time goes on between being like very young and sort of enjoying the fancier things in life and like wanting Mm -hmm. a husband and security and safety. And that felt like the moment where she really stood up for her voice in a group of people where she wasn't sure where she fit in um, and who seemed like they knew what they were talking about, quote unquote. And I I loved that moment. She felt so badass and just like really held her voice. Yeah. (laughs) Thank you. No, that's like really fun. You know, I feel like sometimes people overstate, I don't know, maybe it's just me. I feel like it feels like you can overstate like how much thought you put behind things when you're an author. In that moment, I literally like, I just really wanted to get at that quote because I thought that quote was stupid. It's a very old quote. There are no slaves in France. Famous quote. It's like the oldest recording. I think it was like Henry III, like in the 1300s, right? Oh my God. Really old. And it's been said for a very long time. Um, And it was just, I hated that quote. And, but what I like is that when you zoom out and put it into that context, it was her standing up for, and literally, I know better than you. I, I know that you all feel very important right now. And, you know, you're my little freedom fighters. I appreciate that. But let me tell you real quick that that is not true. And so it's like, I love that that's how you saw it. Because in that moment, I was just kind of on my academic kick. And I'm like, let me tell you. And I was reading up like 18th century French legislation. Because I'm like, I'm in law school. I just finished it. I'm just like, I'm in law school. I'm looking at French legislation about how they they literally changed the law because men were complaining because they wanted to bring their enslaved valets with them to France. And so that's what she was filling out because there was a specific form you had to fill out. And so her father's valet would have to be at a work camp. And then when her father left France, he could get his valet and get back on the ship. Oh my, (laughs) horrible. But it's like, it takes, there's a whole legal and economic infrastructure. And that's what I think, that's another book. But like, it's just incredible to me just how much of our world has been informed by Mm -hmm. the reality that people want to own other people. And it's just, it's, it's, you know, and so Sylvie is so informed by that because she's literally the product, literally mm-hmm. the product of it. Uh, and so it's, it's just imagine how offensive that is, you know, these, these rich, you know, liberal, um, you know, do-gooders, you know, imagine yeah. them all in beanies, you know, in a like, small, you know, chin patch, but that's literally, you know, I'm as liberal as they come, but like, I can appreciate where neoliberalism really falls short. And it's like, she's there and she's just, what are you? what are you talking about? Like, you really don't know what you're talking about and how offensive that must have felt. Absolutely. Um, how young she was, 20 years old. And these men, they're in their 30s, um, which is still younger as now that I'm 28. I'm like, that's actually still quite young to the, you know, Robespierre was like 35, you know, but anyway, it's, I'm glad that that resonated because I, I, I'm glad it felt that way to you. Oh my gosh. Absolutely. It was Incredible. I'm Sylvia as a character in general is incredible. Yeah. I'm sorry. I'm like, you're welcome. I'm literally, I can't. I, yeah, that just, it feels great. Feels great to hear that. Never get old. Never gets old. Good. Good. It shouldn't. I always feel like I'm fangirling like, Oh, I loved your book. No, no, yeah. I mean, you write it and it doesn't still doesn't feel real you know you just you write the book and you know I'm surrounded by almost all my friends are author. you know my best friend's an author it, it becomes you desensitize to it a little bit mm-hmm. because everyone seems successful and everyone's writing these wonderful books and 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 you forget that like for readers or for for content creators or for you know whatever who engage with this because they want it they want to as fans as as curators of like an art form you know 
Like you're free to just read it and love it and then share that love, you know, as opposed to, I feel like when you're creating the content, it feels different just as when you create content, it feels very different than, you know, uh, what is it interacting with it and engaging with it. Um, so it's so meaningful when someone says that they, oh, I loved the scene. I loved, you know, this character, or I loved the, this decision you made. It just changes. It's just, so, it lightens your load a little bit. Yeah. And it, and it grounds me a lot. It, I, I personally don't struggle with like a sense of, you know, it's like, oh, it's bad or whatever. Like, I don't, I think my books are good. That's why, you know, that's why hopefully, you know, I got my agent and I got, you know, I guess getting published. It's not so much that I don't think they're good, but it's, it's to know that it's something special, yes. you know, mm-hmm. that's, that's what really resonates with me. So, you know, yeah. anybody listening, you know, and if you have an opportunity to, you know, tell an author, you know, you love their book, you know, just pick something specific. It just really, if you say, I love chapter seven, when she jumped off that cliff, like, I'm just like, oh my God, you were never, I loved writing that scene. You know, it just yeah. means so much. It really does. Um, Zoe, do you have a favorite liner section of your book actually that you would like to share with us? So the the part that I would really love to share, uh, it's only, I think, like a paragraph or two. Um, it's a part, it's a flashback um, that we should, that we get to see after Sylvie's already in Paris. Um, and we'll realize uh, that if you know the history, there is a specific kind of half voodoo, half political uh, meetup that occurs right before the Haitian Revolution. And the thing that helped instigate the revolution was actually this really big hurricane. Uh, and they all, they saw that as a good omen. And so then they decided to have the rebellion right after the hurricane came. And so during this, you, you'll see, and I'll, I'll be reading it, there's kind of hurricane uh, hanging overhead. So he doesn't mm-hmm. quite know this. So while this is all happening, that's the context for it, is this is right before the rebellion. And uh, Sylvie actually goes and finds her mother's grave on the side of the plantation. So let me start reading. Yes, please. She wove in between those dark mountains, each denoting a recent burial. The darker the soil, the fresher the death. How deep did the bodies go? How many mass graves fed the palms growing strong overhead? Julien was fond of her mother. She knew he would not have put her in a mass grave. Her suffering earned her some dignity in death. Sylvie was sure of it. She moved deeper into the forest, where the grass was interspersed with shoots and shrubs and larger trees. It had not been cleared for a decade at least, but she felt the graves in the spots where the saplings grew. Finally, she spotted the shadow of a cross under the evergreen branches of a mature Sabina tree. The boughs protected the grave from the worst of rain and wear, as well as discouraging much growth beyond grasses. Sylvie knelt in front of the stone cross and read, Beloved Nicole, aged about 23. A small shell necklace was draped across the tombstone. Sylvie recognized them as cowrie shells, precious little things the slaves would hide and hoard all the way from West Africa. She had heard Edmond describe them as a combination of money and jewelry, but the tenderness of the image, tiny white shells tied around the unforgiving Catholic grave, seemed more than that. Her mother was loved, loved so much that someone gave away a precious symbol of home to let her mother have it in death. Her father sacrificed nothing but a pittance on a rock. Some enslaved person gave up a piece of their lost world. Gingerly, she removed the necklace, only temporarily, and lay down on the earth with her eyes facing skyward. She pushed back her fichu and rested the necklace on her chest, secretly praying to any gods that her mother wore it in life. Oh, so so I just imagined her because cowrie shells are extremely important and they're kind of a big piece of jewelry nowadays, but I can't help but think, you know, that's something that somebody would, would carry with them. And it was money. It was significance. It would ward off evil. It was everything. And 
I just had this moment of her lying down on this grave and just kind of resting the necklace on her chest. And, and just, you know, I, I, it just really resonated with me, you know, just how many, how many piles of earth do we walk on every day that has bodies in it? Yeah. Um, that has loved ones that has children has murder, you know, who knows? Um, and it just, it really resonated with me. Um, you know, someone so desperate for that connection um, because it was stolen from her. And, you know, a lot of us still feel that way, that a lot of our connection has been stolen from us. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, it was just, you know, again, the book, it does focus more on the revolution, but I, I use these flashbacks as a way to tie us back to Haiti so that you remember, you know, she's also suffering from PTSD. So it's kind of hard for her to forget, but you know, you remember that it, just because we're in a new place, Sylvie's mind isn't. Mm-hmm. You know, she, she's always reliving um, the experiences and the trauma and the beauty um, of her homeland. I mean, and there is such a beauty in Haiti. It is a beauty. I mean, she has this passion for orchids because there's so many wild orchids that grow. And I could just see the, you know, the green space and, uh, you know, yeah. So I, I just wanted to read that piece. It's a little sad, but there's some joy in it. Yeah. Um, and and hopefully you all enjoyed it and enjoyed it. And um, Oh, my gosh. Yeah. It, yeah. Yeah. That's- it reads well, too. It does. It does. And read the whole thing. Oh, but that moment too is, I, I feel like the moments where you flash back to Haiti are so well-placed because you get so kind of caught up in what's happening in France. And then you take a second to sort of breathe and remember where she came from. And right. that was kind of one of those moments that just felt like, like a movie moment. Like I could see it in my head. And like, if they ever made a film adaptation, like, you know, that that would be in there as like one of those really critical moments. It, w- it was really, really lovely. Thank you. I see. I do think, I know a lot of people are like, Oh, my book, it's more that I write that way. Like I, yeah. I tried to write in a very cinematic way. Uh, that's why I don't love, it's funny. My, my friend always gives me a hard time because I hate narrative. I hate like going into like what I'm like, who cares what they're thinking? Just think about their words. Like, you know what they're thinking, you know? And it's like, that's literally what a book is. So you're describing a screenplay. And I just, so, so I, I think, you know, I always make sure I go back and add that narrative, but for me, it's, it really is. I write with a very visual kind of orientation and I want you to think about it. I want you to, you know, invest all of your senses in that moment. Cause you all know like what a shells feel like when you're touching them. It's always mm-hmm. a little bit cooler and, you know, imagine, you know, what the air feels like when a storm is coming, you know, what, you know, when you see dark earth, what does it smell like? What does it feel like under your fingernails? I like to embrace all of those things so that the full picture is painted for you in those moments. Um, and I don't do that as much in say France, because I, I feel like as Westerners, we, Paris is that privilege as everybody knows what Paris looks like. Yeah. You know, everybody, I, I don't invest a lot of time and it goes back to like the romanticization, uh, romanticization element of it where. I don't indulge that much in like describing every layer of her underwear. I'm like, you, like, you do it. you talk about your bra? Like, do you talk about your bra? Like, do you like the bra against her breasts felt firm? Like, you know, you don't think about, like, you don't think about that. Yeah. You know, and Sylvie wouldn't, they're just her clothes. Um, you know, she's not thinking critically every time she curtsies, you know, or the, you know, all of the nuance of, of propriety at the time. Um, in the same way that she's not hyper fixating on every element of Paris, like, ah, oh, the smell of the, of the sand, and the, yeah. you know, baguette in the breeze, you know, no, that's not how people, that's not how people live their lives. Right. I've been to Paris. Like, it's nice, but like after a while you're in a city, you're in a city and you, you know, exactly. and we're, we're, you're thinking more, you know, immediately. So I, you know, I'm very particular. Like when you, when I lean into the description of, of a space is because the, the character would have, 
Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like when she first arrived or when she, you know, was was on her mother's grave, you know, when would she, what would she be thinking and seeing that would mean something to her? Um, and so I hope that the reader feels that too. And doesn't yeah. let any of those things kind of bog down the real feeling because it doesn't matter if it was, you know, 80 BC or, or you know, 2022, people have been people for about 300,000 years which is, I think, a little surreal, but it grounds me in the way that I write and it should ground the way that we interpret history and the way that we read it. Because people have just been people, it doesn't matter how they spoke or how they move their bodies or what they put on their bodies. Um, People have been biologically, physiologically the same for hundreds of thousands of years. And to treat them any differently than you would treat anyone living right now, I think does them a disservice. Yeah, um, and distances us from them. So that's, I think, why I write the way that I do. Yeah, I think that makes sense, and it it definitely shows. It it just you could see it and you could feel everything that that was happening, and not in a um. Gosh, I I don't want to say pretentious, but not in, not in a pretentious. I know way, you. Right? I know. <laughs> no, I know. I can't think of the I know word. What you mean. Yeah, yeah. There's a there. Uh, high-handed sometimes it can be a little distanced and like not academic that's not fair either but it can feel almost um oh like you're in a museum yeah a hyper kind of um like observational uh as opposed to like really intimately connected um so I, i i feel what you're saying and that's a compliment to me like that's what i try to do and there is a space now no don't get me wrong there are times and spaces 100. where you want that book, you know, where you want to like, but I want to know about the stays where they whalebone or wood, you know, like, you, <laughs> like, you know, you know what I mean? Like, I know that stuff and I love that stuff, but it's, there are certain times when, but that's not the message, right? This yeah. book isn't vibes, which I love a book that is just vibes, but you know, this book is supposed to be more about like, let's talk about the murder and the social right. upheaval. <laughs> There's a lot of other things happening. There's other things happening. We we have that joke. It's like, there's always like, what's the plot? I'm like, no plot, just vibes. (laughs) (laughs) It's just aesthetics. It's just aesthetics. Politics, little romance. Yeah, yeah. some gay stuff, a little little murder. You know, I like like all of it. I, I love it. I love books with all of those things so i, I think they're important <laughs> in the jack of all trades yeah <laughs> um do you have a favorite character um in this oh, book and if they're different who do you feel like is a character that you relate to the most okay my favorite character is hands down is gus uh he's uh, augustin he is a a real guy real real person <laughs> Um, I feel weird, like, because sometimes I want to just talk about things. And I'm like, this is all true. Like, you can look it up. I'm not spoiling it. So it's like, <laughs> do I not? You know what I mean? It's happened hundreds like, of years ago, guys. Yeah, that's literally, well, and I, it's like a genuine, that's actually a genuine, like, professional question. Like, should I, you know, some of these characters do end up dying? You yeah. know, is it a spoiler if I say, if I say that, you know, or is right. it... Like, how do you, you know, because I shouldn't and I don't make the assumption that everyone knows everything about the French Revolution. Like, why would you know who Robespierre's brother is? Like, why would you care? Um, you know, unless this was your, you know, shtick, like it is mine. Right. So it's like, I, I don't want to spoil it if I say such and such or so and so ends up, you know, getting guillotined. But it is, in fact, true. Right. And, uh, you know, my friends, you know, that, that, I'd, you know, read the book, you know, their joke is always just like, I never know who's real. So I just make sure I Google all the names as they come up. <laughs> 
Um, so what do you think before I answer that question? Gosh, honestly, what I think is if it's not like Sylvie, her family, and like her neighbors, the female characters whose names... Right, Cornelia. No, it's okay. The Duplass. I not pronounce it. Okay. <laughs> no, the Duplass. I was always like C and the L. Yeah. <laughs> C and L. I love that. It's like, oh my God, you. Yeah. Oh my God. You again. You. Oh my um, God, you and the yeah. little one. That's so funny. I, I love think it. Good. like they're sort of the core beings right. in the story. So I think no right. spoilers on them, but anyone else who comes in and out, like, to be fair, okay. we have had our whole lives to find out what happened to them. So. <laughs> What do you mean? You don't have the driving urge to find out who was... <laughs> okay, so what I will say is, I will say, I'm going to tell you, you know, something about a historical figure in the book. So it's, so my favorite is Augustin, or I call him Gus, because I like to have a slightly more approachable name. Uh, so he, I, he was established about halfway through my writing process. The book was mostly done, but I had to, you know, I was adding more characters because I needed something. Mm-hmm. And um, I am... <laughs> I just originally I had this weird love triangle between him, Sylvie, and Robespierre, um, and I was told very fairly that it seemed a bit messy because there was then Cornelia. I basically Sylvie Sylvie is a bit um, she is she she uses sex a lot as a way to heal and her own femininity and mm-hmm. attractiveness as a way to make her feel better. A lot of people do that. I've done that. Like it just makes you feel good and life is hard. Okay, yeah. time and dinner. Um, and so <laughs> she, you know, so she does that. Um, but I, they were like, okay, Zoe, that's a bit much. And I just, I loved Gus because everything about him is true. He was actually best friends with Napoleon. Weird flex, really good friends, um, which I think is so cool. I mean, Napoleon's not great, but it's interesting historically. Yeah. Um, and, uh, but Gus, I just loved everything about his energy that I kind of created. He was this very kind of charming, kind of the antithesis <laughs> to his brother. Um, you know, I think Gus was probably a little bit healthier, um, because yeah. after the death of their parent, their mother, their father got like really kind of, he was a bit of a recluse and, and not great. And so Robespierre had to kind of step up for Max to differentiate. Max had to kind of step up for the family. Um, and so, you know, Gus didn't come into Paris until later. So he's kind of like a healthier, um, more charming kind of guy. And, uh, Sylvie really, really liked him. She likes his energy. Um, but I ended up changing it. And because I don't know how to make straight characters, I was like, well, all right, he's just going to be very gay. And, <laughs> and, and, and so it just developed this, you know, this whole nuance of basically she's just this whole time. It's just, and there's like a small moment. She's like, and why aren't you so like, why, why aren't you hitting on me? Like, I just want to be clear. <laughs> like why, like, I feel like this is romantic, but like what's happening. He's just like, you're good. I'm your, your brother's great. I will throw that out yep. there. Your brother is a plus love him. Um, and so I just really loved Gus's energy and how kind of um, loyal he was and how much clarity he has to the whole situation. Yeah. He ends up unfit. And this is true. My editor literally said like, Zoe, I feel like that's a bit too much unless it's true, which I don't think it is. I was like, it is true. He jumps out of a building to commit suicide and breaks both of his legs. They drag him off. Mm. And, like so sad. Okay. But love him. Um, and then the one that I probably identify with the most, probably, I mean, for obvious reasons, you know, uh, Sylvie and I aren't similar in terms of personality. We're very different. Yeah. Um, very different. She, she's driven by different things. Um, and she's much more extroverted than I am. I'm, I'm not, you know, she, she wants to go out all the time and she, you know, she wants these things. And I, you know, she's not particularly picky. Um, and I'm, I'm just, mm, it's not for me. 
And, uh, but obviously in our identity, you know, obviously I used a lot of my own personal growth with her and all of that aside, I actually really like, uh, Quinoline. Yeah. Um, or, or Eleanor is a bit easier to say, um, or C for (laughs) our non-French speakers. C. And she, she, uh, I tried to make her as true to life as possible. She was indeed uh, a painter. We have a lovely watercolor of her, um, of a self-portrait. Um, that is actually not terrible. And uh, she, you know, she was with Robespierre. She was in prison. She was, you know, all of these things. Um, and they called her the widow Robespierre after, you know, after his death. But the, the way that she kind of, her practicality about everything um, and her high expectations for the behaviors of other people. Um, I think is very much something that I sometimes to a fault where she doesn't allow for the fact that people are people and that like Sylvie is young and has gone through a lot and simply didn't have the privileges that Cornelie had. I mean, Sylvie did have an excellent education, um, but Cornelie grew up in a very academic childhood. Like her father mm-hmm. was just very much it's funny. He was like a carpenter, but like he was really into education. Um, and so his kids were incredibly well-informed. And, uh, and Sylvie and, and Coralie, you know, she enjoys teaching Sylvie and, and probably infantilizes her a little bit, which is part of the issue. Um, but but Coralie also is just very harsh with her. And that's just something as kind of my own character flaws. I can be really harsh uh, when yeah. I think people have fallen short of what I think they should be doing. And I, I think we need to learn to be a little bit more generous, to be more generous with ourselves and more generous with the people that we love. And that we should always assume goodwill when people do things, um, you know, within reason. But I, I think assuming goodwill is helpful. And, and Cornelie, you know, slowly learns to be a little more generous with Sylvie and understanding her perspective and maybe why she's not so come ho to just be like, all right, I'm going to risk my life for this. You know, it, you know, it's it's like maybe, you know, Cornelie is a little reasonable that Sylvie, after all of this, is a little reticent to just jump into not only going against Robespierre, but but going against this kind of new ideology that she's trying to embrace to feel whole again. So, so Yeah. So I would say I really identify um, identify with her. Plus, she was very pretty, and I'm like Kiss. Like I, I just I love them both together, and I just I <laughs> literally now Kiss. Uh, I just that's me fifty percent of the time while I'm writing. But yeah, so that's that's pretty much I would say I love Gus, and um, I identify most with with Cornelie. She's also very similar as far as a sister is concerned. Uh, oh, yeah. I remember that scene where she like yells at her sister. She's like, "I'm very rude. What you did?" And like, I totally don't know my sister. Just, like, my sister's just like. And I'm just like, okay. don't be rude. And she's just like, I'm just a baby. Don't yell at me in public. And I'm like, that's me. I'm like, you just, you shame me, dishonor on you, dishonor on your cow. Like that's that same energy that I bring. I, I'm curious about the relationship between um, Sylvie and Cornelie. Did I say that right? Yes. Yeah, Cornelie. Um, I, I loved their relationship. I really? thought it was so interesting. Yes, really? I... Well, I was started reading it and I was like, Sylvie has a lot of conflicting feelings. And I was like, oh, okay, here we are. They're gay. <laughs> um, <laughs> I was like, what's happening <laughs> here? Um, and I love it. I love it. I was reading and I think it really has to do with the way that they deal with one another and sort mm-hmm. of like almost a power struggle between the mm-hmm. two of them to sort of figure out who's right and who's wrong and who's mm-hmm. sort of succeeding more in this rebellion and with Robespierre that yeah, top versus bottom energy. Yeah. 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 <laughs> um, I wonder if I could say that on your podcast. No, that's fine. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Full stop. Cornelia's top energy. 100%. She's, she's a soft dom. Let's call it that. Let's yeah. just say that. And, and Sylvie's a bit, uh, you know, 
in the bedroom she's just like okay whatever you want babe whatever you're feeling anything I'm all, yeah just buy me something nice that's um, kind of her energy <laughs> Sorry, and <go> ahead. <laughs> I was browsing on Goodreads um about this book and a lot of people are comparing them to um Evelyn and Celia from the seven husbands of Evelyn really? Hugo and oh I I don't want to just be like, they're lesbians, so they're the same, but um, they do have a lot of the same I get off energy. of something funny. I keep leaving. <laughs> <laughs> they're lesbians. lesbians. They both drive Subarus, and it's the yeah. same. It's great. <laughs> but oh I felt like there were so many correlations because Evelyn and Sylvie are both kind of looks obsessed and like start in a certain way and Celia and Cornelie both want something of the other that they're not getting right away right so I could I could I could see the similarities and you don't want to know you want to know something upsets me a little bit I'm not gonna say upset that's not fair I this was done before I read the 700 uh, oh no the seven husbands of Evelyn Hugo and then I read it and I was like all right okay (laughs) <laughs> oh, this is very sad. I was just like, this is the same energy. And I was just like, it, it, it wowed me just how much I like, I was saying same thing, same, like it, very similar energy, yeah. I think. And I see, I feel like you get that type of dynamic a lot. Um, you're more likely, I feel like to see it in men where it's like, you're wanting more from them and they're not, they're not stepping up. Yeah. Um, and so I think when you see, you know, you know, unless you're like, ooh, nuance and with men, I'm like, oh, they're just trash. Like, that's okay. <laughs> Part for the course. But, right. for, um, you know, and, and you know, I, the way that I, I approached it was I wanted, I wasn't really interested in like a discussion about sexuality um, mm-hmm. because that's not a concept in the 18th century. There's no such thing as sexuality. It's just make sure you stop whatever you're doing when you're married or you keep it very yeah. discreetly, make sure you're a good parent. Like that, it really was that simple. Um, or it was a joke, you know, like there's lots of jokes about, you know, Marie Antoinette, um, you know, performing cunnilingus on uh, the Princesse de Lombal in uh, caricature, like satire. Like, yeah. it, like that's just kind of a, it, it's it's hard, I think, especially for a modern audience, like that the idea of sexuality did not exist. So how can they have, so I find it difficult to inject modern I, ideas of like conflict and sexual yeah. identity. I'm not interested in doing that. That's something else you'll never see in my books. I I simply, and this is, important and it deserves a space in media i am personally just very disinterested in any type of like sex sexual crisis like i like like i'm very very um bisexual and so i also find it fairly difficult to write characters that aren't uh like you know bisexual i you know it's always a bit foreign for me to you know i remember growing up and being like oh like everyone's attracted to women and then being told like no <laughs> no, oh, why not? Like, you're, well, yeah, you're missing out. Right, they're pretty and have soft things. Like, why not? Um, and so, you know, when I'm writing it, it's also very liberating because, again, uh, it's nice to just. That's all, maybe another reason why I like historical fiction. It's like just modern hangups don't exist. Mm-hmm. Um, there are different hangups, like literally hangings. Yeah, um, but you know, beyond that, it's like much more free. Like, yeah. there's so many jokes about like if you go to England. And uh, in the 18th century and 19th century, the jokes about schoolgirls, like what they did when they went to school. Because if you were like an upper middle class, wealthy young woman, they sent you off to a girl's school, right? Yeah. Like, like Jane Austen, you know, like Emma Woodhouse or any of those, you know, of, of, of wealth. That's where you would go. You would go to a, to a girl's school. And uh, yeah. that was the joke was like, 
girls would like to have some fun and make some friends. And then once you married, you're supposed to sever it, right? That was that was the way it worked. And so I'm really, I'm really emphatic about not injecting those the modern framework of sex and sexuality onto the past. Um, I think there is a space for it. Just like the concept of, you know, being anti-racist is all throughout the book. I'm never going to call it that. That wasn't, right. that concept didn't come up until 19, I don't know, 50. Like it, it you know, I'm not going to inject it, but the ideology behind it is very much present just in the same way that, you know, being bisexual, it's like, no, there wasn't a label for it, but I mean, that's what Sylvie probably would have identified as now. Yeah. Um, you know, she likes men. She likes women. She She's more about, you know, the person than the, you know, the genitals and, I just, I loved the way that Eleanor or Cornelie wanted more out of Sylvie, mm-hmm. right? Wanted to push her to be a better, bigger person. Whereas Sylvie, I think, pushed Cornelie to be more vulnerable and to be more present um, and to be more emotional, right? Yeah. And to engage with her in that way, which I think is important. I just love them to get, and, and I think you're so right. Because again, when I read that book, when I read the seven hundred, uh, the seven hundred, seven hundred, the seven husbands, not seven hundred. That's a very different story. It's a lot. Um, it's, it's a lot. It's excessive. Excessive. <laughs> Ridiculous. Um, <laughs> a little, but uh, you know, and I had the same kind of reaction, and I, I didn't know that people were also identifying it, but it, you know, I think that's a good thing, um, because again, I think it shows just the the continuity of like relationships yeah. and how people are fundamentally the same. Um, it doesn't matter what you, it, it, the way you articulated, I think it was perfect. It was just like, you love each other, but like one person wants something from you yeah. that you're not willing to give for whatever reason. Um, and it's becoming an obstacle. Yeah. Um, and it's, and you're holding us back. And uh, I, I just, I think that's perfect. And so like, if that bleeds into seven, hu- seven husbands, <laughs> seven husbands, uh, I think, I think that that's perfect. And I do actually recommend that book at the back of uh, like, you know, books you'd recommend on in, like the book, book club kit. Uh, I actually do recommend um, Taylor Jenkins read because for that exact reason, because it, I think tackles so many of the same concepts. Yes. Different time. And, and, and so then you do get some of that, that's angst about sexuality and you do get more on the nose discussion about race, but it's different. Yeah. Um, and so I think it's a really good companion to it because it maintains the themes, but develops them for a slightly different period. So historical, technically, but yeah. it, you know, more, more modern uh, in, in like historical speak, 18th century is called early modern or modern. That's actually the beginning of modern history. Okay. Like if I'm talking about like modern, like that's modern, early modern is 17th century, think like 1600s. Um, so it's like, I, I think that, you know, looking at the French Revolution, I, a lot of historians and, and like sociopolitical, you know, thought it's like, that's the beginning and, and concepts about other things like gender and, and race is old. Uh, we've, we've had the discussion about race since like the 17th century, but, you know, things like sexuality and gender, that's like, you didn't really see that until the, maybe the end of the night, maybe the end of the 19th century, you're just starting yeah. to see slightly more hardened ideas of like, sex um and who's supposed to have sex with who um and then once you're in the 20th century then it gets no fun yeah so. here we are <laughs> here we are here we are doing our doing our best yeah. we get rainbows and we get a month um so, so what more could you want i mean what more could, that's all i want i want a target t-shirt with a flag on it it's yep. been commercialized i want it i mean arguably you get the best month june I, it, june is a really 100 you get flag day 
Yeah. And you get pride. So I, I mean, I don't know what all the gays are complaining about. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why we're so upset. I think this is all we could possibly. Oh, uh, I kid, I kid. <laughs> uh, yes, yeah, I'm sorry. That's the thing. I say things like so deadpan. I'm like 50% of what I'm saying is so much a joke. I need like a little ping. We need like a noise for like sarcasm. So do I. I need like people to know when I'm like joking. Yeah. So I feel like I just say my jokes and I'm like, people probably just think I'm a huge jerk. No, but I, yeah. And I'm just like, they're like, ah, is that a joke? And I'm like, yes. I'm yes. like, sorry. Like, like, how do I italicize my words? Right. <laughs> like, when, how when do I, I do these? like my my gym look to camera or something. No, literally like a flea bag style. And this is the part where I'm making a joke. Yeah. <laughs> like, I need that. Oh my yeah. God. Um, well, a few questions for you about becoming an author. Do right. you feel like you have a writing process? Backslash, what would that be? Um, um, for me, I hook on to, because I write historical, and the way that I find that works best is I normally have a scene in my head and I have a historical moment in time. Um, and I normally, it's actually a triumvirate. So it's a scene, historical moment, piece of art history that almost always is ends, up, ends up with happening. So the death of Marat is the piece of art history. If you've seen it where he's literally dead in the tub, looking yeah. all, you know, dead, right? All stabby stab. Uh, I love art history. So that's always a huge piece of my work. Uh, and then the historical moment um, is uh, the French Revolution is like the enormous, moment, but it was really the Haitian Revolution. It was the uh, execution of Vincent when he was put on the wheel and he was killed. Right. So that's that was probably the historical beat that I was like, this is going to be like, what's the turning point? This is like the big moment I'm really fascinated by. And then the scene that I had in my head, I would say that the scene that I, I really just it resonated with me so much was when. So you're on that like I was when I was reading about the Tuileries. The, the storming of the Tuileries and all of these Swiss guards, they're like the, not the Vatican ones, the, the Tuileries ones. Right. And they, they were all slaughtered. Like, and they were, they were young guys. Like they were just, it was really, it was really bad. And uh, they were all dead. And so just the, the vision of like these, these men just kind of like just strewn across those steps, you know, falling for a monarchy that's no more. And so kind of all of those things I ended up kind of aligning into making a story. Um, and so I would say generally, those are the three pieces that are part of my process is, you know, vibes, which is the historic, <laughs> you know, the art history yeah. um, and then the historical beat that I'm like, this is a really big deal for me that I want to make sure I represent. And that's the the execution. And then, you know, what is the, you know, what is a scene that like, I feel like is really quintessential. And that's the, the, the storming of the Tuileries. And it's like when she goes up at the end, right. And there's like, cause they did, they cut off their yeah. pieces and put them in their mouth they're you know they and she goes and she actually ends up taking a button um and he looked so much like her brother who's blonde and, and very kind of handsome and she was just like it just reminded her it was really visceral um and so that's and that's how i always write you know the the book i'm writing right now is the same mentality i have a piece of art i have a historical beat it's an assassination and then i have a um historical period or um a specific event so it, i just i always operate i think in those threes and i find that that kind of triangle creates all i need to write a book that is literally so interesting i find it so interesting to find out how people like start their stories because it is it's always so so different right right well some people say i had a dream and i'm like well all right like (laughs) good for you (laughs) i literally they're like i woke up and it was that's great um and some people you know i have other friends where it's like you know it was a sentence that like i really need to have and you know and i think and that's the beauty in it but like you have to find your own rhythm as to what helps you get excited 
about it. And normally, like, I get so excited about, you know, the art history part of it, because I see it and I feel it. And then there's always more art that comes involved, you know, like the death of Murata's one. But then I found that portrait of Cornelie, and there's like this portrait of, you know, there's a, in the book, you know, there's a whole portrait of Sylvie that, that it becomes very, very significant to the story. And that's always a big piece for me, because it's just kind of another way to reinterpret history is art. Yeah. Um, so in the same way that historical fiction is the same way. So I, I really love to use those things together. I encourage everybody to do that though. If you're writing anything historical, look at a lot of art from the period and trust me, you will learn everything. Like you learn so much, not only from clothing, but to like, I mean, this is a joke, but not really vibes, like just how yeah. do things feel. You know, if you look from like, you know, the famous, but the, uh, the famous artwork, um, by Fauconard and it's the the swing think of the girl in the fluffy dress and her she's on a swing and a oh, grassy yeah. right and she her little shoe is flying off yeah all um, things a metaphor for an, or- an orgasm which is what's so funny oh really um, <laughs> it is yeah it's actually an all yep it's a complete metaphor for, for sex um but it's adorable right you think of that that's Rococo fluffy and pink and then think of the death of Marat in your head right two very different but separated by a very short amount of time you know, and, and, but that is how you can kind of see what are the values of this mm-hmm. society? What, what is the color? What's the filter of yeah. you know, putting over it? And so I really, I really love using that. Yeah. Oh, that's so smart. That's so smart. I think it's so important to like really figure out what works for you. Like yeah. as an artist, um, I'm in a screenwriting course right now. I'm getting my master's and oh, um, congratulations. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. And I think it's so tough, especially in the beginning, you get so much advice on like how to start your scripts and how to do this. And you hear what your classmates are doing and you, you really, it, you just got to figure out what works for you, you know? Literally. Yeah. My, my only advice, and I do feel like this is fairly universal, start where you want to start. Like if there's a specific scene you want to write, just write it, just write it. And then once you write, it's just, then you can start at the beginning. But it's like, if you have something that like, this is what's going to inform me in a story, just write it. You don't have to start at the beginning. Yeah. Like I, I find that like, If you're excited to write it or you're feeling it right now, just write it down. Yeah. Yeah. I literally, it is my scrivener is like, I have a section just like random bits. That's what it's <laughs> called. Random bits. And I'm always going into it. Like, does this fit? Yep. Nope. As well. Nope. Not yet. <laughs> that's literally, that's so much of what I do is just little bits, <laughs> little notes on my notes app, you know, all types of things. So I, I really do believe that. I think that people should be able to just write what and where you want to. And then once, I mean, obviously you have to write a cohesive book or a cohesive script, right. but I think it is really helpful to, to, if you start, you know, if you, if you use that as a catalyst for the the book or the script, you know, it, it really gets you going and it, it makes it, you're more likely, I think, to finish it and to flesh it out yeah. rather than making yourself start in a certain spot. I don't know. It can drag you down. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Um, would you say that you have always been a writer or a storyteller? Nope. No, nope. no, 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 no. I, uh, I, you know, it's funny. I'm like my, my, again, my best friend, she's been writing since she was 11. Um, and, uh, and she's an author now and she's, you know, she's doing so well. And, you know, I was watching her process and then, uh, we were, uh, roommates the entire college process. Um, and then once we were living in an apartment, it was our senior year. And, uh, I was just like, okay, I'd like seen her do this. And like, you know, she's got her book deals and she's doing great like yay I'm like I could do this I could do this <laughs> literally was my thought I was like I'm so competitive and I was like I'm gonna do this too uh and so I wrote a book and it was it was pretty good uh it should, wasn't going to get published and didn't and that's good uh it's her first book shouldn't if anyone gets like their first book like that's weird don't do that um it's probably not gonna be good no I that like I really find that very odd 
Um, but it was my, but I got a lot of great feedback. I got a lot of full requests. I got a lot of like, just really great responses from everyone. And they were like, just send me your next book. It's going to be great. Like just send me the next one. Uh, so, uh, the next, I think two years after, uh, I wrote, uh, MR at the time it was called mistress of terror. Uh, and, uh, I wrote it. I started querying. Um, and then fairly quickly, yeah, I got, I got my wonderful, uh, agent, uh, Amy Bishop over at DGNB. Um, and then it was kind of very quick. Pro- and then, and then she helped me that the editing obviously took a hot second, but we edited and then we, we went on pub and then, uh, it was, yeah. So I, I'd say that, you know, the writing for me came, say, tw- you know, 20 is late in life, but it was, you know, it, it was certainly not something that, you know, occurred to me. I loved reading. I was always a reader. Yeah. Um, but I really like theater. I really like theater. I, I like doing work as like an extra, um, you know, I like film a lot, Yeah. Like, you know, I, I really love the stage in another life. I probably would have, you know, per, uh, pursued like performance. And then I also really liked school. Um, I, I, I liked going to school. I, I, at first I wanted to be a medical doctor. Now I've, you know, got my MPH and my law degree instead of being a doctor. So it's like, I had a lot of things I felt like pulling me in different directions. Um, and I felt that, now I feel that the writing was actually the keystone to yeah. to feeling complete um, creatively as a woman, because it's something that I can always do regardless of what I do professionally. And if I become a writer full time, I don't think that's going to happen unless something crazy happens. But, um, you know, I, I think that for me, it, it becomes it's a really huge part of my creative life and my private life. And then, you know, by day, you know patient safety and quality improvement and like hospital yeah. setting, you know, like I love that. Um, but, but yeah, so, so yeah, I, I was not, uh, no, I just kind of, I just wrote a book really. Uh, and, and then it, and then it just kind of went on from there. Um, but everyone has such, such a different story. I mean, some people have been writing since they could hold a pencil. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I, again, I think it helps. It, it doesn't always occur to you that that's something that you can do. You know, it didn't occur to me that writing was something that I could just do until you know i'm watching my friend who who knows everything and anything about it you know and she's doing all her wonderfully i'm like okay it it takes away it it lowers the barrier right when when you see it being done in such close proximity i watched her process watched her getting her agent watched her going on sub watched her you know book launch and you know it all becomes much more attainable when it's like someone else is kind of you know their footprints are there yeah um and it made it feel less terrifying and foreign so that that's a real privilege that i have Amazing. Amazing. Well, genuinely, congratulations, because I really, really loved this book. And um, even though you came to it, we'll say later in life, not that, not that late. Um, <laughs> when I was wise and old, yeah. 20, my third surgery. <laughs> but I'm, I'm so glad you came to it and like discovered something that you love. That's amazing. Thank you. I do love it. Again, it really, it's a keystone. It, it fits a place that I, I needed. I don't think I would have been fully happy without it. Yeah. I think it's something that I, it really, did, you know, um, I, I think for some people it's like, uh, you know, their response is, you know, if you couldn't write or, you know, if you knew your books would never be published, would you still write? And a lot of them are like, yeah, like, you know, it's not about doing five. I'm like, I, I disagree for me. I, for me, it's about sharing. No. And I, yeah. you know, I, maybe I'm not supposed to say that. I, I just, for me personally, it's, it is about, it is about sharing the book. Like for me, I don't write for me. I knew this information. Right. right. But I, I wanted other people to learn it and to and to hear and to feel it in the way that I wanted to package it um, because I think it's important and it's yeah. worth sharing. I think that's fair to say. Like I'm writing scripts and I'm not just writing them for myself because what a waste. <laughs> like I would like them to be made. <laughs> 
thought you were going to be so gentle. It's like, yeah, no, like I understand people. You're like, no, like what a waste. All of this, this talent. Okay. Like I have to, I have to. I'm a genius. Well, no, but, that, no but, but it's like, if you have a talent, like if you have a real talent and it's like, I want to, add, not to sound conscious, but like you want to add it to like the greater lexicon of creative work. Like, right. isn't that the point? Like you want longevity. You want a legacy. And, and to be a part of that, I think a part of that greater pool of talent and, and, and art, like that's the, you know, not that doing it privately means it loses meaning. That's not what it means at all. No, it's definitely just, I not. think, what does it have? What drives you? And for some people, it's the act of writing drives them. For me, it's not the act of writing. That's homework. It's not like I'm having fun. I know that sounds sort of I'm not having fun. Like I love writing, you know, 15,000 yeah. words. Like, no. Like I have, I want to just like, let me just talk to you about it. You know, like you don't, you know, but we do it because you want the finished product yeah. and you, and you, and you know what it can be. So you put in the work and you do it. Um, and, and just like, you know, you're writing your screens that you're trying to figure out formatting and trying to figure out pacing and you're figuring out you know, how many notes do I like? Am I a lot of notes, a little notes? I mean, how much blocking, how much, I don't even know if they call blocking in a script writing class, but you know, how much do you, what is my style? You know, and I, and you're doing it because you maybe you want to, you want to write a film, you want to write scripts, or you want to write books or whatever it is that you want to do, but because you want to share it. And that's what drives you. Um, and I think any drive, any purpose is legitimate. Um, but I think identifying it is the most, that's not probably the best advice I can give is identifying why are you doing this? So yeah. that if you do fail, you know what to do next. Does that, does that make sense? Like, cause for some, absolutely. Right. Like you need to know your hard stops. I yeah. think that's important. And I, I feel like there's not a lot of pragmatism in this industry. I feel like we're a lot of, and I feel like that's fair. Like in the arts, we're all going to be kind of warm and fuzzy. Yeah. Um, and maybe because I'm not originally from this industry, that's why I'm a little bit more like, Meh. um, but I, I would say knowing like, you know what, this hasn't worked. I've been doing this for about five years what's important to me? Is it getting it published or writing? It's probably the writing. So I'm just going to keep writing. Maybe I'll come back to querying later. Maybe, you know, who knows? But right now I'm not going to focus on that. It's just making me bummed, you know, or you're like, this isn't working. I need to scrap this, try a new book. Or is it my writing? Maybe it's my writing. Nope. Okay. It's the book. And then you write a new one and yeah. you try again. So I, I think that's what I, I, it's kind of where I'm coming from. It's like, if you don't understand kind of wh what drives you and why you can sometimes end up wasting a lot of your energy in spaces that you shouldn't be. Um, and I don't want that for people. I, I don't want people to, you know, what if I, if I was so obsessed with my first book, I mean, I would still, you know, and to, to, when you know, it's perfect. It was not perfect. Yeah. Maggie, this is the secret is that it wasn't, it had no plot. That book was all vibes. It was so good. And it was well-written, but it was, that was the issue. They were all like, that's pretty much what they were saying. It's like, the writing is so great. I can tell you're going to be talented, but like, how do you gently say, what's the plot? Right. <laughs> like, and this stuff would happen. You can't like stuff would happen, but I'm like, it's more like the character was just like, I'm watching this cool thing. You know, it, it wasn't plot. Um, and so I had to learn and I went back and I'm like, this is what's important to me is getting published. So I was like, it was fine for me to scrap a book. What's whatever. Yeah. I'll write a new one. Um, and that's what I did. And it worked. Um, I was fortunate in that it did work for me. So I guess that's how I feel. I hope, I hope it's digestible and it's coming from like a good place when I say it. Cause I, I don't know, think you there's know, anything wrong with that because in general, I'll probably always find a way to be creative or a writer in some capacity, but I'm not going yes. to put in the amount of work that I currently put into scripts if I know they're not going to get made because it just doesn't yeah. make any sense to me to do that. To you, and that's what I'm. That's what I'm getting at. That's what I'm getting at. And I'm yeah. glad. I mean, having that type of self awareness, I, I think you cannot survive in in an, in any creative industry without self awareness, whether it's visual performance. 
you know, written, it doesn't matter what it is. If you don't have the ability, you don't have that perspective to be able to stand back and look at yourself and be like, girl, this is not working for you. You need to do something else. You know, and I'm like, it's just, you know, I, I, some people are happy doing the opposite. Just keep investing all that energy until maybe what, you know, people do this for like 20, 30 years. And I'm like, that's actually, that works for them. Like that's, that works yeah. for them. And if it doesn't work for you, then you have to find another, just like you said, we would find ways to be creative in some meaningful way. Cause like you're writing, let me take a shot in the dark and say that you're a talented writer. That's very sweet of you. Thank you. Yeah. I have no idea. I have no idea, but I'm going to say you are a talented writer. And I'm going to say that, you know, you are still acting in a really creative capacity by inviting me into this space and like talking to me in a really engaged way and, and talking about, it's still, I feel like in the same space. And like, yeah. I feel like I'm hoping this still taps into those creative elements um, for you. And you're engaging with a community that is very happy to have you. Yeah. Um, so I, I, again, I think that you have to just, you have to find a niche and you have to find what's going to work with you in a sustained way or else you're going to burn out and then, and then nobody's winning. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I completely agree. You got to do what's best for you. So, yeah. And you know, what's best for me, Maggie? What? Pre-ordering my book. Yeah. <laughs> That was beautiful. That was beautiful. Okay, everyone, if you are interested in purchasing Mademoiselle Revolution, which FYI, you definitely should. Even if you are new to the historical fiction genre, I think this is a great book to sort of dip your toes into it because you learn so much and it's so like easily digestible and so much fun. So much fun. Mm, you'll just eat it up. <laughs> um, sorry, I said that. Like brioche. Yeah. <laughs> like brioche. Um, oh I will leave a link in the episode description for those of you who are interested in the book. Click on the link and give it an order. 10 out of 10 recommend. <laughs> at least Thank me you. and Zoe. Two out of at 10 least, recommend. Yes, yes. Two out of two <laughs> dentists um, recommend. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> for sensitive gums. Mademoiselle <laughs> Revolution. <laughs> It's supposed to be serious. We're serious artists. We're serious. I'm a serious podcaster. Um, So serious. All right. (laughs) Well, uh, Zoe, final question. Um, What is your all-time favorite book? You know what? I'm going to say, I'm going to be real honest with you. My favorite book is Pose of the Earth by Ken Follett. I actually you, you know it. that one. Yes. Oh my God. It's okay, so good. nice. It, Sometimes people tell me books and I'm like, oh no. Really? <laughs> esoteric. And I'm just like, I don't know, man. Like, I don't. <laughs> if it's not in the checkout line of a food, food line, I don't read it. Like, I don't know. <laughs> if it's not at the airport, but, okay. I've never heard of it. <laughs> if it doesn't say James Patterson on the cover, I don't fucking know. I don't know what it is. Try again. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I, so I started that. My mom got me that book when I was 12 years old. And that, or maybe my 13th birthday, maybe my 13th birthday. We had no money. We were no, we were so broke, little B broke, not capital B broke, but little B broke. And she took me out to uh, lunch. Um, we were in this old abbey. It's called the Abbey because it was an old abbey and it was a beautiful place for lunch. And we were sitting up there and it was all the architecture. I'm like, mom thought this out. She thought this out. And my, my one gift was this book because bless me, it didn't occur to me to go to a library. Um, and it, I don't, it wouldn't have been an, it, I think that's the other thing. I feel like sometimes we're unfair to people like, just go to your library. And I'm just like, the libraries in Virginia beach are not going to have, you know, the, 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 you know, the books that I'm talking about, like, you know, what it, the books that I wanted, yeah. um, were just not going to be available. So it was important for me to, you know, scrounging up my Barnes and Noble gift card money, but she gave me, um, she gave me clothes of the year. I read that in a 36 hour period and I 
the, I've read all, all of his books, like all the historical fiction ones. Um, no offense. Um, I read all of the historical fiction ones. I'm not Ken. <laughs> no, I'm not Ken. So Ken's probably with his wife looking at really, really cute English churches right, right. now, uh, which is what he normally does. But um, I, uh, I read I read that and then, you know, all of the other ones and then watch all the movies. And I have this most recent one. It, he The way he writes this, I would describe it almost as an epic because it's, you know, generational and it's large. And, and that's actually what I'm currently essentially working on. Is, is something kind of along those lines, but he ma- he writes historical characters like they're people, mm-hmm. and that and that's kind of what it really showed me what historical fiction is supposed to be. Like he sometimes leans into the I'm going to say it like in the almost the George R. R. Martin space where like he does there's this one thing that he's really into that he learned, so he yeah. wants to write it, you know. And everybody does that. Like you're really into it, so it's like why are you sharing so much information about this? But like I know it's this one type of pie that's like unique to this region. <laughs> it's not moving the story along, but he's but, the best. But, <laughs> but he's obsessed and like, I'm here for it. And so my point is just that like, he wrote, he writes about like true evil. That was the other thing that like, he was comfortable writing about the actual evil that, that people experience um, in a really meaningful way. He also knows his, he knows his space too. Like it's all English. Um, and it's all like in these English hamlets, which I like. He, he knows what he does and he does it well um, in such a raw, emotive and intimate way even if there's five characters, I know them all. And some of them are just bad people. Yeah. They are bad people that you are actively working against. Um, and I love the way that he brings so much humanity to the every book that he has written, regardless of the time or the place. And so that, that just completely just altered me. And I don't think, I don't think I would have, uh, I don't think I would have written books if it would not been for kind of the way that he, brought historical fiction to me i mean i I read read so much of it but it was the way that he he writes in this again like an epic and these generations and several books um and these small tie back you know callbacks to to previous work and i just thought it was absolutely incredible and i i still think about them and and that's kind of i suppose my professional goal is to is to have work that's like that and that you know these tombs that they look they look scary but then you you get into them and it's just this intimate tale of a couple or a single young boy or a young woman who just wants one thing and the world seems to be against them having it but they have tenacity they have intelligence they have gumption um and and they manage to navigate it um because we still have those stories they're happening all the time and always have um and and so i just really really resonated with me so that's probably probably my favorite close of the year Oh my gosh. Amazing. Good answer. I, I love that I recognize it. I'll be honest. I haven't finished it yet because it is quite large. Um, but I remember when it was introduced to me, we actually did an episode about it on the podcast. It's one of our very first episodes. We did like a Mother's Day one of our mom's favorite books. And my co-host mom, her favorite book is Pillars of the Earth. And my right. mom's favorite book was The Notebook. And so we had an hour where we were talking about Pillars of the Earth and The Notebook. Same. Same, very, like they really together. Yeah. I love them. Very fun, chaotic energy. I very much. And what I thought it was just for Pose of the Earth, like you chose Pose of the Earth for the Mother's Day podcast. And I'm like, yeah, there's a very interesting representation for mothers in that book. Like, I don't know if yeah. I would have chosen it, but that more weird. power to yeah. yeah. It was like <laughs> our third episode, like way back in 2020. <laughs> oh, oh. when we were so new <laughs> oh, small babies yeah. small babies but a big book so I do yeah. recommend you finish it I know it's a lot um I just you know put it under your pillow I used to do that I put it on my pillow 
and, and read it. But it's <laughs> it's just so good. Like yeah. it's so good. And I just I don't know. It just it clicked with me. Every everything about it I thought was just made it the perfect book for for Zoe Seaback, the perfect book. Amazing. Um, I'm definitely gonna finish it. So thank you so much. Okay. I I will be haunting you. Oh, <laughs> oh gosh. Just yeah. sending me messages once a week. Literally. Did you finish it? Mm-hmm. Did you finish yes, it? Did you, so did we, you okay. love it? So look, yeah, like how about those buttresses? <laughs> That's what I mean. Like you wouldn't stop with like, I mean, I know the whole thing. It's about architecture. Like I get it. But I was just the thing. I was like really talking about like, I really understand a buttress. Right. Like I really, like I feel, I didn't ask for this, but I, I know a lot. Now you know. Uh, now I know. Now, now you know. Can add I know, that, romance, uh, romance art, like, uh, you know, I, like I said, I like, I took a, you know, or, uh, like our history courses, like I love it. And I'm like, I do, I know what these are. Um, but I want to get back to like the chaos, like stop, no more architecture. <laughs> yeah. Like, I feel like there's, you're trying to throw some geometry in there. Like, this is not, it's not what I paid I this. $3.99 for. Right. No. <laughs> Let me uh, use my money wisely. <laughs> so not on this architecture course you're giving me. <laughs> no. <laughs> Um, well, Zoe, before we let you go, any final thoughts? Oh, I don't have a single thought in my head, Maggie. Uh, no, um, uh, final thoughts. Um, I love what I do and I hope that, uh, I hope that some people listen to this and, and, and their thought isn't, wow, she talks too much. Um, and I hope your thought, I hope it becomes, wow, I love the word she says. Imagine about, you know, imagine the word she writes. Um, so get the book. Hopefully you love it. Um, it, it got 10 out of 10 from, from Maggie. So I, yeah. And her last name is Dickinson. I mean, that has to count for something. Oh, wait, is this spelled wrong? She spells it with an I, doesn't it? Doesn't she? Yeah. Yeah. yeah she's spelled I, with an I. Okay. Theoretically so, could be related to Emily Dickinson. The, so. Theoretically, theoretically the Emily Dickinson liked my book. So I, so what dis- are you going to do? Like not buy it? I know she literally, she is a, she's a queer legend. Like, would you say no oh. to the ghost of Emily Dickinson? I don't you, shouldn't. you shouldn't. <laughs> you shouldn't. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, well, you guys, if you're interested in buying it, which jokes aside, you really should um, follow the link in the episode description and uh, we hope you enjoy it so, so much. And thank you so much, Zoe, for joining us today. Thank you, Maggie. This has been nothing but jokes. But uh, seriously, <laughs> I have really valued this conversation. This has been the best one yet. So thank, wow, thank, thank you. you. No, seriously, totally. 10 out of 10 stars for Maggie Dickinson, soon to be thank famous you. screenwriter, wow. buyer of my books. Uh, and, and yeah, excellent. Love every minute. Loved every minute. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much. <laughs> Bye. Bye-bye. Well, we heckin' did it, you guys. Thank you so much for listening. If you like what you heard, share us with your other bookish friends and family. And if you're listening with Spotify or Apple Podcasts, be sure to rate and review the show. And if you are interested in joining our Novel Finds community on Patreon, please follow the link in our bio. And be sure to follow us on Instagram at Novel Finds Podcast. Thank you so much for being a novel friend. We will see you all next week. Bye!